Once you add anything to Jesus, you have already undermined who he is. You have undervalued his blood that was shed on the cross. Would you turn to Colossians? Um, and as you turn to chapter 1 of this marvelous book, I, I pray that um, God would open our hearts to the truth of the supremacy of Christ as it is sprinkled all over this epistle. But we start reading, we'll only focus on the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. And whenever Paul writes a letter, he tends to stick to a main theme that corresponds to that particular letter. For example, when he writes to Philemon, the theme would be forgiveness. The book of Romans, it's about justification by faith. Philippians, as we're going through it, it's the joy that Christ brings to us. But when he comes to write this letter of Colossians, Every passage in this book is a big, fat, red arrow that points to the absolute supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all things. As many of you would know that when uh, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, it seems that Ephesians is uh, written in a very similar way to Colossians. So we call it the twin sister of this epistle. But yet, when you dig deep enough, you would find that, that the emphasis in Ephesians is on the church, the body of Christ. But when it comes to Colossians, the emphasis is on Christ, the head of this body. Even the Gospel of John with all of its glories and magnificence and its display of the fullness and the deity of Christ, yet it doesn't even come close to the direct and clear affirmation of the preeminence of Christ in all of, all of creation in this epistle. In fact, just to whet, whet our appetite a little bit more and to see how Christ-centric this epistle is, let me give you some observations in this epistle. First of all, there are 82 references to who Christ is and his works that are threaded right through from the beginning till the end of this epistle. Secondly, and even more than that, that when you break down this epistle into smaller segments, you will find that every segment in and of itself has a supremacy and a sufficiency of Christ imprinted on it as its main point. Just like if you, if you get a diamond and you get a hammer and you smash it, and then you find that all the fragments of that, of that diamond carries exactly the same shape, so also every section of this letter sparkles with, with Christ and, and His magnificence. Let me give you an example. So, for example, when we look at the main sections in every chapter in his book, there are four chapters. The first chapter is about Christ's supremacy revealed. 
the second chapter, Christ's supremacy defended. In the third and the fourth chapter is Christ's supremacy lived out. And even when you break down chapter one further and you say, well, how is the supremacy of Christ is revealed in chapter one? You'll find that from verse one to verse 12 in that the gospel of Christ that is preached. In verses 13 and 14, in the redemption that Christ accomplished, and again in, in creation, in the church life, in philosophy of ministry, and on and on and on. And you find that every section of this epistle pivots around the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And since no other book in the entire Bible better equipped to unveil and to, to pull the veil and to expand our view of who Christ is, and to enrich our mind with his highly exalted place above all things. And as we let the word of God in this book enlarge our understanding of who he is that we worship, I, I pray that this supremacy of Jesus Christ would have its desired effect in, in our hearts to be blown away by Him, to be mesmerized, to, to be overwhelmed to the point that we would begin to see that, that how great it would be to obey all the imperative commands in this book, to walk in Him just as we received Him, to set our minds in the things above, to keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. But first thing is first, and we start with the basic introduction. Today's just basic introduction. We're going to look at the senders of this epistle, then we'll look at the receivers, and then finally we'll look at the greeting. All right, so first the senders. Who are these people that sent this epistle? And we start with verse 1 and the first word we've covered at length last week, Paul. All right, so Paul, um, if um, you recall that he once he was regenerated by God, his life was changed completely. He turned his life upside down before he turned the world upside down. Ever since he was born again, he had this unsettled longing for Christ to be magnified. And the compelling force of this desire led him to, to preach Christ in three missionary journeys. And these three missionary journeys, he, he went around to pagan cities right throughout, throughout Asia Minor. But he never stepped a foot in Colossae. He never got actually to preach there. He went only in so far as Ephesus, which was about 160 kilometers away from this city. And 160 kilometers, that would be from, from perhaps here to Philip Island. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that Paul never saw them personally. Verse 4 of this chapter, chapter 1, he only heard of their faith. But he also heard of other things that were displeasing. He heard that there were several problems that were about to creep into this church by false teachers. And these problems were so significant that if left undealt with, 
it would have destroyed this church from the inside. And this warranted Paul to write this letter to, to this church, to correct their view. Now, what, what are these significant problems? We'll talk about it at the end of the message, Lord willing, if we have time. Otherwise, we'll carry over to next week. All right, but for now, let's move on. It says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul here identifies himself as a sender with his official office, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be an apostle? Just a couple of things. First, an apostle is one who's uh, had the first-hand witness of the resurrected Christ. Secondly, he was directly and personally sent by Jesus himself to be his ambassador. That's what the word apostle means, an ambassador, the sent one. In other words, he's carrying the divine authority with him. He's God's spokesman. He speaks for God. So which means when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is basically saying, I am putting the stamp of Jesus' authority on this letter. Sometimes Paul starts his letters this way. Not always, sometimes. And he does this um, because the situation demands confrontation. And he's basically saying to them, hey, listen, I am not writing this letter to you to give you my own opinion regarding this matter at hand. Nor am I writing this to you in order to entertain you. It's not like I was sitting in an imprisonment, imprisoned cell and I had spare time and I thought, well, how do I make you feel good about yourself? So I wrote this letter to you. No, it's got nothing to do with you. It's got nothing to do with me. And he continues on. And he says, by the will of God. It has to do with God. God is the one who called me. God is the one who appointed me into this office. So I'm writing this to you with divine authority. In other words, watch out. Get ready. Get your pen and paper handy. Pull them out. Write into your own heart what I'm about to tell you. Then <clears throat> Paul continues and he says, And Timothy, our brother. Right, so Timothy is one of the senders, not one of the writers. Okay, so Timothy does not mean here that Timothy is the co-author, the co-writer of this epistle. We know that because in chapter four and verse eighteen, Paul tells us, he says, "I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand." So why did he include Timothy? I thought about this. There are three reasons that came in mind why he would include Timothy as in the introduction of this epistle. Number one, because Timothy was Paul's closest companion. He accompanied Paul since the, the second uh, um, missionary journey. Number two, <clears throat> Timothy was loved by Paul. By Paul. He loved them so much. Yes, Paul loved many people, but he loved Timothy with a, a greater intensity, if you like, especially Timothy. He loved him so much as though he was his own son. He, if you recall, wrote two letters to Timothy. He sacrificed much of his time and effort in order to mentor Timothy. Number three, 
I think this is one of the most important ones, is that Timothy was about to graduate from being a disciple of Paul. Soon, Timothy will be handed the responsibility of overseeing many churches surrounding Colossae. Later on, Timothy is going to be the main pastor um, of the church of Ephesus, which was at that time a prominent church, very influential and large church. And so given a huge um, task at hand and the prominence of Timothy and his financial role that he's about to play after the departure of Paul, Paul wanted to promote Timothy. He wanted to show to the Colossians that such a close link between him and Timothy in order for them to understand that he will potentially be uh, Paul's successor in leadership. So he included Timothy in the opening of this epistle. All right. Um, this, these were the senders. And what about the receivers? Who are the receivers of this epistle? So we come to the second verse, to the saints. Now, it says, continuing on, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Some people call it Colossae. I'm just used to calling it Colossae. It's up to you how you want to call it. All right. Now, to the saints. I've been waiting for this for so long to explain what saints are here because I come from, you know, the Orthodox Church and they have misused and abused this term. Right. Now, saint is not like the Catholics or the Orthodox teach. For them to be a saint, what does it mean? It means to be the elite of the elites of Christians, the warriors, the champions of Christian virtues. To, to the Catholic belief, in, in order to be a saint, in order to qualify to be a saint, well, what do you have to do? You have to lead a righteous life. You also have to perform a miracle while you're alive, as well as a miracle after you die. Okay? In the Coptic church, the assessment in order to be a saint is even stricter than that. Because in addition to the above, what you have to do is that you have to wait for 50 years after the death of that person for him to be recognized to be a saint. Make sure they collect all the stories and all the you know, the miracles, quote unquote, that he performed, and then they collate him together and they say, okay, he's a saint. Of course, there's always exception to the rule, but that's just the general um, rule that they have in place. But here, Paul debunks that whole idea altogether. And he says to the saints, faithful brethren in Christ. The faithful brethren in Christ are the, those who are saints. So who are those people that are saints? He actually begins to break down this kind of people from chapter 3, verse 18 onwards. And he speaks to the wives, to the husbands. He even goes further and says to the children, to the slaves, to the masters. So who are the saints? Who are these faithful people in Christ? All believers from all different walks of life. You know why? Because saint basically means something 
or someone who's dedicated to God. That's what saint is. Something or someone that is set apart, consecrated to God. This is you and I, brothers and sisters. Faithful in Christ. And by the way, when it says faithful, it doesn't mean that you're reliable. It doesn't mean that you're a good guy in Christ. No, it just means that someone who has faith in Christ, someone who's full of faith in Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ. In other words, the moment we placed our faith in Christ, we were made to be set apart for God. We are totally and exclusively his own vessels. Whether our lives reflect his truth or not, it doesn't change the fact that we are now saints if we believe in him. Praise be to God. It's the blood of Christ that purchased this status for us. How grateful should we be to Christ so that he would purchase us and call us his saints. Now, <clears throat> Paul goes further. Who are these people, the receivers? Who are these receivers particularly? He went even more, he, he became even more specific and he says, <clears throat> who are at Colossae. So it's those believers, those that are set apart for God, who belong to this specific church in this specific geographical location. And I couldn't help but to, to bring to your attention again the importance of this truth. Please note, Christians in the first century never ever only belonged to a universal church. If you were a believer at the time of Paul, then you would, you would belong to one singular local community. You're identified to be part of this local community. Well, we're going to stay in, a God, in, in that same epistle. I'm not going to take you anywhere away from that epistle. But please turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 15. 4.15. <clears throat> we'll look at these couple of verses. It says, greet the brethren who are in where? Laodicea. The brethren who are in Laodicea. This is another Community of believers committed to one another. Where? In Laodicea. And he continues on. He says, also Nympha and the church that is in her house. And Nympha is a lady. She's got a, a church, a group of people in her house. Verse 16. When this letter is read among you. Among who? The members that make up the church of Colossae. It says, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. Again, the church of Laodiceans, the members of the community of believers that make up the church of Laodicea. Can you see this? And he continues on. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. He uses cluster after cluster. He speaks to church after church, a group of people. The scripture is always consistent with this reality. That every Christian is part of a cluster, a group of believers called local church, where his love and is to love 
where he serves and is to be served and dedicated to this group of people in order to obey all the one another commands. That's what's called one another. One another implying within your local community of people. Right? Now, Colossae. Now, a little bit more about this city. Just to, just again, it's just basic introduction, and we just want to know a little bit more of, of just the high level abstract idea of this epistle so that it would make sense to us as we continue on in this epistle. It's the, this city. What do we know about this city? Well, what we know about this city that it was a small town. Historians write of it that it was at the time of Paul a small town and it was made up of Gentiles and a large Jewish community. Now, obviously, it was a pagan city, so it would have had a lot more Gentiles than Jewish community, but the Jewish community there, there was significant. It was large um, assembly of them. And now this city had two neighboring cities and they formed a, a triangle. And, and they were about eight kilometers apart from each other. Paul tells us the other two cities in chapter 4, verse 13, Laodicea and another one called Heropolis. Right? So you've got Colossae and Laodicea and Heropolis and the three form a triangle. Eight kilometers. I don't know. That, that would be from, from here to, to hillside maybe. Maybe a little bit less. Maybe a bit less, yeah? Okay, and now what do we know about them? Well, Laodicea and Heropolis, they overshadowed um, Colossae in terms of the finance economy. Um, Laodicea, on one hand, they had the banking system. It was a commercial town. It was business-oriented. So they had a lot of money because of that. And on the other hand, you got Heropolis, and it had minerals. It had hot springs, so it was a holiday destination, a touristic attraction to many people. That's how they gained a lot of money. But Colossae, even at the time of Paul, it was already on a decline. It had some, you know, they had sheep, and then, um, you know, but but it was very poor and bothered. And as I read, um, I discovered that by the fourth century, uh, this city. Um, no longer existed. In fact, now you wouldn't even find ruins of this city. Well, this, is, this was the city. Now, how did they come to believe in Jesus? Now, we piece the information together from the Scripture. This is what we find. This is how they have come to know Christ. Paul was in his third missionary journey. He went, as we said, um, all the way to Ephesus, and how long did he stay there? For three years. He remained there for three years preaching the gospel. Acts 20 verse 18 tells us that he was preaching repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That happened in uh, Ephesus. And not only that, but Paul told us, in fact, he told um, the elders of the church of Ephesus that he preached the full counsel of God during his three Year period. And so while he was there teaching and preaching, in Acts 19:10 tells us, so that all who lived in Asia, that was Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So even though Paul never left Ephesus, 
all Asia Minor heard of Christianity. How? His converts would have gone around Asia Minor spreading the gospel. And by the way, it was during this time when Paul was in Ephesus for three years, it was, it was an awakening. It was like churches were founded everywhere. It's like fireworks. You know, the seven churches in, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you know, the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, and Thyatira, and Sardis, Philadelphia, and all these churches, this is when those churches were founded. And it just happened that during this three-year period, when Paul was at Ephesus, we don't know exactly when, there were two men from that town of Colossae that traveled to Ephesus, and they came to saving faith. Two men from Colossae. Who were they? One by the name of Epaphras. That's in chapter 4, verse 12. He says about Epaphras, who is one of your number. Meaning, he's, he's from Colossae. And once Epaphras believed under uh, the preaching of Paul, in chapter 1, verse 7, it tells us that he took the word to his own people. Colossians began to believe in Christ, and that was a time when they, um, um, and that the church was founded. So that's one person. In the meanwhile, there was another rich man that went to Ephesus, and he too believed under the preaching of Paul. We know this man very well. His name is Philemon. We know Philemon because Paul sent a letter to him. He was rich. We know why he was rich. Because he had slaves. And one of them was the runaway slave on the Seamus. That's why Paul wrote this letter to Philemon. Now what's Philemon got to do with the church of Colossae? Well, once you again add all the pieces together, um, you discover that the church of Colossians gathered at Philemon's house. They would have had a large house and they would have stayed there. How do we know this? I want to take you through an interesting Sherlock Holmes kind of discovery to show you how we can add the pieces together and have that conclusion. Right? You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to tell you in Philemon chapter 2, oh, sorry, verse 2, Philemon is in one chapter, verse 2, Paul says to Philemon and to Apiphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Apiphia, that would have been his wife. Archippus, many, many um, um, commentators that would say, it's his son, not too fast about that, but he says, our fellow soldier, meaning the main leader, the pastor of the church, if you like. Now, and he says, and to the church in your house. So Archippus would have been the, the main leader or the pastor of the church in whose house? Philemon's house. And then, stay with me, Colossians 4.17, Paul now connects the dots for us. And he says to the members of Colossians now, he says to them in verse 17, say to whom? To Archippus. Who's Archippus? The pastor of the church at Philemon's house. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. 
Say to that man who's teaching the word, take care. Make sure you do your work diligently. Received ministry, meaning you were appointed to be a minister of the word of God to the church of Colossians. Right? So, Archippus, the pastor of the church at Philemon's house, is the same person whom Paul commanded the Colossians to say to him, take care of the church of God, basically. Right? So, summarize it, grouping it together, what do we find? We find that the receivers, who are they? The believers who were saved through the preaching of Epaphras had Archippus as their pastor assembled in Philemon's, Philemon's house in a town called Colossae. These were the receivers of this epistle. All right. There's a little bit more, but I didn't want to overwhelm you. So maybe we can continue talking about this in the evening study. It's very interesting. But anyway, we continue on. We come to the third point and the final point. The greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, this is a benediction. It's a wonderful, it's beautiful benediction. Paul always begins his letter with his benediction. Always. Every letter would be stamped from the very beginning with a kind of benediction like this. Most of the time he would say almost word for word. Sometimes it changes around instead of peace will be and mercy from God the Father. But mainly peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. What a beautiful thing that he would begin the letter reminding the, the saints, the believers, that God is our Father. Only the children of God, adopted by God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to the children of God only does God grant free favor. That's grace. And because of God's free favor, can we enjoy the peace that is from God with God? The grace of God is the golden key that unlocks the, the heavenly Pandora box so that the, the peace of God will be poured out. You'll always find that the grace of God has in its tail the peace from God. And that's a beautiful thing to reflect on. But again, I, I do want to only keep it high level for today. So I just want to move on and, and ask, and you can say that this is the way of concluding. All right, conclusion. Uh, um, asking that question, what compelled Paul to write this letter? What, what were the significant issues that Colossians were facing that led Paul to write this letter? By the way, Paul was imprisoned by that time in Rome. He was imprisoned in Rome. Let me just give you just a quick background on when Paul wrote this letter. He was in, um, uh, after uh, finishing his third. Um, 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 missionary journey, and then uh, he got arrested and uh, went all the way to Rome. And around that time, Onesimus, remember Onesimus, the slave of Philemon, somehow he met Paul. He was unconverted. Paul preached a gospel to um, Onesimus, and he believed. 
And around that time when he believed and he stayed there with Paul, learning, of course, the way of living a Christian life, around that time, Epaphras, who's, who was at Colossae, he, he saw this dangerous, dangerous heresy, we'll know about it in a minute, uh, was about to creep into the church of Colossians. So he went all the way from Colossae to Rome in order to inform Paul. Seeking advice, what do we do? So he left Archippus, of course, the pastor, taking care of the church, and then Epaphras went to Paul. Paul wrote the three letters. The, church of, the letter to the church of Ephesus, uh, Colossae, and that one single letter to Philemon. Philemon took the three letters along with another uh, brother, and he went to the churches around to hand over the letters to them. Okay? Now, why was it so significant, this problem? What was that problem that made Epaphras travel all the way from his home city to Rome to inform Paul about it? Well, Colossians seemed to have um, a wave of Eastern philosophy, a heresy called Gnosticism. We spoke about it last Tuesday night. And they had this heresy, and it was mixed with some Jewish um, legalism. And that wave of heresy was heading in a direction. And the church of Col Colossians at that time, by the way, was six years old. Does it ring a bell? It's about Saving Grace Bible Church is six years old, by the way. All right. Now, now this... Gnostic heresy, what is it about? Well, it was fundamentally began by trying to answer this philosophical question, which was how can a perfectly good God create a world that has so evil, so much evil in it? And I tried to philosophize, how is it? God is so good and yet the world is full of evil. And so they falsely concluded that it, it must have been that God created angels and angels created other angels and other angels. And then eventually down the bottom, there were somehow angels with bad DNA, right? There were flawed angels, evil, bad angels. And so these bad angels created the world. And if bad angels created the world, then it's not just that there's evil in the world, but no, um, the world is evil. All matter is evil. Well, if that's the case, then God, who is perfect, is far removed from that matter. It has nothing to do with this world, with this evil world. Well, we're in a big problem. Why? Well, how do we get to know this God? How, do we, how can we be made right with this God? Well, they came to another wrong conclusion. In order to be made right with God, you have to reach a state of perfection as God is perfect. And, and, and you do that by two things. Number one, you have to have certain knowledge, certain wisdom, mainly through visions, but knowledge and wisdom. You know, Greeks, they, they took pride in long technical words and hard definitions and, you know, um, they came to a conclusion, if you are a very, very intelligent person, you must be very spiritual. Right? And, 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 um, and that dominated their thinking. 
You've got to have to have the right knowledge, the right wisdom in order to reach a state of perfection to be made right with God. But not only that, since God created angels and angels created angels and other angels created other angels, then what you have to do is that you've got to worship those angels because they will help you to get closer to God. And the more angels, good angels that you would worship, the more of a chance that you get to get closer to that God. And so in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul tells the Colossians, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So for the Gnostic, in order to be right with God, You've got to reach a state of perfection. And how do you do that? You need Jesus. That's not, of course you do need Jesus. They don't deny Christ. But you need Christ plus knowledge plus worshipping of angels. And that was the number one heresy that was crashing in and was about to destroy the Colossian church. On the other hand, you've got the Jewish legalistic heresy. We need to understand this, brothers and sisters, so that when we read Colossians, even in our own time, it would make sense to us why Paul is saying what he's saying. So you've got the, the Jewish legalistic heresy that was creeping in. Now, this heresy had its own uh, devilish version of how to be made right with God. Right? Well, what is this devilish version? Again, no one denies Jesus Christ. Of course, you've got to have Jesus. But Jesus is just simply not enough. Well, what do you have to do to be made right with God? You've got to follow the Mosaic ceremonial law. You've, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow rituals and regulations of the Old Testament for God to accept you. So in one hand, we've got the Eastern philosophy the Gnosticism that says Jesus plus knowledge plus worshipping of angels equals salvation. And on the other hand, you've got the Jewish legalism where, which says Jesus plus works equals salvation. And somehow both are mixed together. And the poor Colossian believers, six years old in the faith, maximum. That was sandwiched between these two heresies. Once you add anything to Jesus to be accepted by God, anything, whether knowledge, whether works, worship of angels, it doesn't really matter. Whether feeling, I have to feel holy to be accepted by God or sacraments, or rituals. Once you add anything to Jesus, you have already undermined who He is. You have undervalued His blood that was shed on the cross. Because what you're saying is, His blood is not enough. I have to do good works, or confess my sins, be baptized, whatever, in order for me to be accepted by God. In other words, poor Jesus, he can't do it on his own. I've got to give him a hand in order for, for him to help me, to save me. 
Jesus is not enough. Just what kind of Jesus are you trusting in? It's not Jesus of the Bible. This is why we, we don't say that Catholicism or Orthodox are just another denomination of Christianity. It is not. They're heretics. Their gospel is damnable. It would damn people. We need to understand this. Why? How come? Because Jesus plus anything equals hell. It does not equal salvation. It equals damnation. And Paul goes through all this false teaching and he destroys it, dismantles it one at a time. How? By focusing on Christ, his glory, his sufficiency and supremacy. The preeminence of Christ burns all sorts of false teachings. What about extra knowledge? Don't I need to know certain knowledge plus Jesus to be saved, to be made right with God? Chapter 2, verse 3. You don't need extra knowledge because in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You don't need to worship good angels to reach God. You don't need to worship Mary or saints or pray to icons to be to be made right with God, to get closer to God. How come? Because in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, he's saying it's fully God, truly God. All, all the fullness of deity dwells in a body, bodily form. And he continues on, he says, And in Jesus you have been made complete. And Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. You know what he has in mind when he speaks of all rule and authority? The good angels. Jesus is the head. What about the bad angels? I mean, they make me sin every day. Surely I've got to do good works in order to redeem myself. To atone for my sin. Chapter 1, verse 14. In Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Paul is preaching a crystal clear message that is echoed through the corridor of time and history. And we've got to let the whole world know it. We've got to, if you're a man or a woman or a child, you've got to believe this. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient for all things, especially to be made right with God. Nothing else does God require apart from Jesus and his atoning works. Nothing less satisfies the justice of God other than Jesus and his atoning work. Nothing more you need in order to be made perfect in the sight of God other than Jesus and his atoning work. Jesus is all you need. 
How come? He's all you need. Let me read to you what I believe one, one of the most beautiful, wonderful passages in the scripture about Christ and who he is. Again, Colossians. We're not moving away. Just Colossians. Chapter 1, and I'll be reading from verses 15 to 18. This is why he is all you need. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Verse 17, Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. And Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that Jesus himself will come to have first place in everything. In everything. Oh, I can't wait till I exposit this passage. He tells you because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You don't need anything else. You don't. Christ is enough. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Is all we need. We confess it. We declare it. We proclaim it. He is all we need. We may not feel that. We may doubt this from time to time, but our doubt rises, Lord, out of our sinful life, our weaknesses, flaws, and failures. But the reality remains to be as solid as a rock, the rock of our salvation. Christ is preeminent. Christ is supreme. He is sufficient for all things. And those that were martyred for his name's sake, those that were burnt at a stake, those that were devoured by lions, those that were torn, Apart, they are today in heaven among him, with him, worshipping him, with all the thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads of angels declaring that Christ is indeed who is enthroned in heaven, is all glorious, all wonderful. Majestic in every way. And if they believe he is enough for them, we are so thankful and we praise him because it would also mean that he is enough for all of us in all things. We praise him in Jesus' name. Amen.